Gabe, and good morning, everybody. Again, thank you so much for being here. Uh, it's great to see you. This past week, I listened in on a conversation among three atheists, and they were discerning what is the best way to go about living life. Now, I would say these are probably three of the greatest minds uh, in the world right now. They're not, not believers, not Christians. Jordan Peterson, Douglas Murray, and Sam Harris. Uh, two of them, uh, uh, Douglas Murray attended Oxford. Uh, Sam Harris is a PhD in neuroscience from the University of California. Um, Jordan Peterson, you may know that name, he's become pretty popular, uh, attended Harvard University. And they were having this conference, and the three of them were having a discussion in front of a very large crowd. And they got to a point in the conversation when they started talking about how should people go about living and pay very close attention to what these men have to say. You'll hear from two of them. One in the middle is Douglas Murray. The one on the far right is Sam Harris. Listen to what they say about how you should raise your kids and go about uh, living life. They're going to get that video queued up and uh, play it for us. Often with terrible damage along the way, I can see that. But also with something else. And I'm, I'm struck by the number of people, and this is why I share some of what I think is Jordan's concern about the possibility of the world you're envisaging, which is I can think of a lot of parents now uh, in my country and other countries as well who I'm just very struck. They themselves are kind of baby boomer or 60s atheists, humanists, whatever. And I start to notice, for instance, that they're enrolling their children in Christian schools. And I say to them, why are you doing this? And they have fairly coherent arguments along the lines of the one I've just had. Look, I don't particularly believe this myself, but I think it's a pretty good way to bring up the kids. It's a structure of a kind. And I'm not sure, I can find all sorts of flaws in that. But enough people are doing it that it's something that needs to be addressed. Yeah, well, I, I, would, it's, I would say, yes, it, it speaks to a real failure of imagination and, and effort in the secular community sure. to produce truly non-embarrassing alternatives. Exactly. Yeah. And, and this, is, this yeah. is across the board. This is not just school. This is how do you conduct a funeral? How do you get married? You know, all of the, what, what rites of passage can you offer a 13-year-old? What are you doing here? What are we doing here? Yeah, yeah. Just I mean, to have, how to, to be have... the first people in history to have absolutely no explanation for what we're doing at all. Yeah. Is, yeah. is a big moment. Yeah, yes. Okay, you can pause there. So, listen very carefully to what you just heard. These are three of the greatest minds, all atheists, are incapable of offering you a way of doing life outside of what? Christianity. Man, I appreciate their honesty. <laughs> now, this has been going on a long time. If you go back and look at some of the founders of the nation, Thomas Jefferson, for example, he took his Bible, he took a razor blade, and he cut out all the parts that had to do with supernatural activity, God, and miracles. However, he left the rest, and why did he do that? Because again, people understand. And again, this, some of the smartest people that the Judeo-Christian ethic works. Now here's the rub. 
they are unwilling to acknowledge as to why. Why does it work? And they want to divorce themselves from the faith that it takes in the Creator and the one who designed the Judeo-Christian ethic. But see, there is a way that God has given us to live. And the greatest minds in the world who have not been willing as of yet, I think these men may be close to the kingdom, not willing as of yet to acknowledge the source of that way of living. But then the question comes to us. Since God has given us a way of going about living the Christian life, and this is what I want to talk about this morning, how do you do it? How do you do it? If you think that there's a better way of doing it out there, outside of some of these seemingly archaic lists of commands that we get in the Scriptures, nobody's come up with it yet. And again, I, I wonder if these guys would have if they could. Again, I deeply appreciate their honesty in being willing to say to a crowd of people, we're raising our kids in Christian schools because they provide a, a structure and a framework on how to go about doing life, and we have not come up with something better. And as, and this is a message that Jordan Peterson, again an atheist, has said constantly in, in a lot of his lectures, if Western culture tears down its Judeo-Christian ethic, it will have nothing to replace it with. So I want to talk about this this morning, because frankly we're coming to a chapter in Hebrews that... After all of the discussion of doctrine and Christianity and God, now in Hebrews chapter 13, the author is going to give some rock-solid, here's-how-you-do-it way of living the Christian life. So we'll be in Hebrews chapter 13 this morning. I'm going to read a lengthy section. As a matter of fact, you can go ahead and remain seated. I'm going to read about 19 verses of Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, please follow along as I read this. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. 
Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I might be restored to you the sooner. So we're now coming to this very last chapter of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13. And if there's one thing I hope you take away from the book of Hebrews is those three words, we say them every week. I'm going to ask you to say them with me one more time. Don't stop believing. In the future, as you go to the book of Hebrews, and you may pick up on a section of it, remember that. Remember the overall argument that the writer of the book of Hebrews is making, encouraging a group of people, do not stop believing what you've embraced. There was a constant temptation to go back to their old way of doing things, back to Judaism. And he's saying, don't do it. And a lot of the imagery, and you heard it just now, he's using appeals to Judaism. So here we are, we're entering this, this last chapter of the book of Hebrews. And by the way, I'm going to give a little plug. Next week, the Cooks, John and D. Cook, two missionaries that we support, will be here speaking. And after that, I'm going to take a few weeks to do a, uh, a series on what's happening in our world right now. Uh, we desperately need to bring a biblical and theological perspective to events that are happening right in front of our eyes. So we'll, do, we'll take probably four weeks uh, to just take a look at the current events, kind of what's going on in the headlines, and bring a Christian worldview to those events. And this morning, I want to approach the topic that we introduced, living out this Christian life in very, again, he gave us very black and white terms of how to do that, like this. First, I just want to talk about why must I live out faith? And then finally, how do I live out my faith? And then how do I respond to church leadership? There were two sections that came up in, that, in those scriptures that we just saw, one pertaining to everyday life out on the street, you could say, and then a section on how do I relate to the church and to church leadership. So look at that very first question. Well, why must I live out my faith? It's a big question. And, um, and what do we mean to live out what we believe? Because, I mean, we'll, we'll fail, right? I mean, we, we saw the list of the do's and don'ts. And we're going to fail at it. We're not going to do it perfectly. But then God is gracious, isn't he? And some have come to the conclusion, well, that I shouldn't even make the attempt. Well, no. That's not the point. We don't sin more so that grace can abound more. Why do we need to worry about this list of do's and don'ts? Well, think about the path that those atheists have gone down. Because they're freely admitting that their belief system does not arrive in a way to live. And I, again, I can't thank them enough for being able to introduce this sermon with what they just gave me in that. Uh, because, see, what they believe doesn't produce anything. All they can do is tear down what currently exists. Because if we are all just time plus matter plus chance, I mean, what are we doing? There is no purpose in living if you can't appeal to some objective standard out there. And they admitted it. They said, we're the first people in history that are kind of shrugging our shoulders saying, 
we don't really know why we're here. They admit they don't know how to explain a marriage because it's God who brings two people together. They don't know how to handle a funeral because it is God who gives us hope after death. They can't handle these things. These are big, big ideas. And right belief is what leads to right practice. You see, if I truly believe that I'm created by a loving God, like, like if, if that is my heart belief. By the way, the, the writer of Hebrews has, has taken 12 chapters to now get to this point where we're at. Back in Hebrews chapter 10, he alludes to it a little bit. He, we, we talked a bit about living out our faith, and that was, you know, I, I encourage you to become an irritably loving encourager. But now he's getting very, you could say, granular in how he's describing how to live life. And if I truly believe that there's a God who loves me, and he's given me instructions on how to live, then I really need to live that out if he's the author and creator of all things. But see, if I believe something else, for example, if I believe my worth and value comes from how well my kids are performing, if I truly believe that, if that's a heartfelt belief, in practice, I'm just going to dog them to death to try to make me look good. If over here, if I believe my worth and value comes from my bank account, or how much money I'm making. Well, how is that going to work its way out? I'm going to become a workaholic. So you see, what you believe over here is going to show you how to practice over here. Right belief and right teaching will lead to right practice. This is why we must live out what we profess to believe. Christ alludes to this in Luke chapter 11. There was a woman in the crowd that he was speaking to it said, Lord Jesus, so blessed is the mother who bore you and who nursed you. And Jesus heard her say this, and he said, well, hold on a second. He said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That's how you receive blessing. Doing what the Bible tells us to do. So that's the why. That's why we must live out our faith. So then what's the how? How do I live out my faith? And we are graciously given by God. And please don't just think of this as a list of, of killjoys. That is not what we have here. There's five areas listed here in this passage of how to go about living. It's very straightforward. First of all, he says to love each other. He says to love each other. The text there of verse 1 says, Let brotherly love continue. Um, simply acknowledging that they had been loving each other. They need to continue loving each other. And by the way, you know what? If we would just live by the golden rule, if we could just do that, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, man, we could, we could do this. You know, uh, treating people the way you want to be treated. Remarking to people the way you would want your statements remarked to if that makes sense. Just living that out would be such a great way to love each other and moving forward. Um, that makes a huge statement to the world around us, how you and I as Christians are treating each other. And unfortunately, I could hear laughter from the world when Christians treat each other poorly. I'll never forget a viral video. It was around Christmas time in the Church of the Incarnation uh, in Israel where these priests all got in a big fist fight. This is not a good scene. 
We need to be loving each other well, even when we differ in opinions on things. And trust me, there are a lot of things going on in our world that we can be differing in opinion on. But can we have this rock bed foundation of love and treat each other lovingly, even when we differ in things that aren't going to amount to a hill of beans? And then secondly, be hospitable. Be hospitable. Look at verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. It's one of, those, one of the most strange verses in the Scriptures, this idea of unknowingly entertaining angels. But this is about being helpful to someone that you do not know. There's a number of ways we can do this as a church. Uh, supporting the VOA, supporting the Legacy Pregnancy Center, uh, supporting the, the Elder Fund, and, and then, frankly, just helping out people out on the street when you have the opportunity to do so. And in doing that, at some point, you may actually have helped a supernatural being. And there's nothing in this passage that says that you had any idea that you did it. It reminds me of this story I heard about a taxi cab driver in Washington, D.C., and he picked up a few people, and it was during the weekend of the presidential inauguration, and he was driving along, he started talking about football, and said, you know, my favorite team is the Steelers, but he said, far and away, my favorite quarterback is John Elway. And a couple of passengers in the car said, would you think you'd recognize him if you saw him? Well, he looked in the rearview mirror, and guess who was sitting in his car? It was John Elway. And the story says he was in town for the inauguration, and he snapped a couple of pictures with this guy. But sometimes, unknowingly, we may entertain an angel. How cool would it be to get to heaven and have an angel come up to you and say, hey, thanks for that sandwich. I don't know. It can happen. And then third, minister to the mistreated. Minister to the mistreated. This is connected to the previous two. We see this in verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Notice it gives the motivation there, since you also are in the body. In other words, the metaphor often is used of the body of Christians as being like a physical body. When one of us is hurting, the rest of us also need to be concerned and hurting for that person. And this is in direct reference to uh, persecution that was happening to Christians at the time. At the time of the writing, it was very possible that you were going to be imprisoned for your beliefs. And inevitably, some were going to be imprisoned and persecuted more than others would be. And the text is saying, have a mind for those people. As a matter of fact, they did this, the Christians of the time did this very, very well in the first and second centuries. There was actually an orator at the time named Arist Aristides uh, from around 137 AD, and he wrote a letter to the emperor of Rome talking about these Christians. And he said this, if they see a traveling stranger, they bring him under their roof. They rejoice over him as over a real brother, for they do not call one another brothers after the flesh. But they know they are brothers in the Spirit and in God. If they hear that one of them is imprisoned or oppressed for the sake of Christ, they take care of all his needs. If possible, they set him free. If anyone among them is poor or comes into want, while they themselves have nothing to spare, they fast two or three days for him. In this way, they can supply any poor man with the food he needs. This, O oh, emperor, is the rule of life of the Christians, and this is their banner of life. Wow, that was convicting to read that. 
Sometimes I forget to even pray for my brothers and sisters living in other countries, undergoing severe persecution, imprisonment. I mean, could we at least do that? Until it actually comes here, you know, don't forget, don't forget to visit old Chad when he gets locked away in Sheridan County Jail at some point. I'm thinking it'll probably happen. I don't know when. I hope not. But what will we do? How will we handle it? And prison ministry is not easy. Uh, back when I was in West Virginia, I spent four months teaching a Christology class in a maximum security prison in West Virginia. Uh, it, it's a scary thing to do, you know, when you get in that prison yard, they lock that big door behind you, and it's just you and them. There's a critical shortage of prison guards in this prison, by the way, and I'm handing out grades to these guys while I'm teaching. And a lot of those men, you know, they've made horrible mistakes, but when you hear their life story, you can't help but ask the question, there but by the grace of God go I. We've got brothers and sisters in prison. We have men in our church that visit them from time to time. But let's at least be in prayer for our brothers and sisters behind bars, some of them there because of their faith in other countries. So we need to have a mind for the mistreated. Uh, and then fourth, we need to uh, stay pure in marriage and singleness. Uh, we see this in verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. You know, we, we can talk about this, and we can talk about this. And, and for many, this is like, I, you know, to be honest, maybe I'm starting to feel my age a little bit. I'm starting to sound like those adults that I was listening to all the time whenever I was a teenager, saying the same kind of things. But keep in mind, nobody has figured out a better way of doing the sexual relationship than God has. Whenever the readers of this letter got this, by the way, they'd been hearing it too. The sexual immorality that was going on in the Greco-Roman Empire at the time of this writing was rampant. If you think things are bad now, it was at least as bad, if not worse, back then. Now, granted, there weren't as many avenues... You weren't carrying around something in your pocket that gave you access to lots of images that are not going to help you. But it was rampant back then, and they had heard the Ten Commandments. Those Ten Commandments, do not commit adultery, had come along 1,500 years before they got this letter. And I can see those people rolling their eyes when they got this. Oh, come on. Are you serious? That is so 1,500 years ago. Do you know that if people lived this way, 83% of the abortions in this country would stop? And by the way, um, frankly, I don't care how many people you may or may not have slept with in the past. I really don't even care. I, I, I don't care if you have STDs. I don't care. Because you know what? Today, you could start in a whole new path. Uh, this is what God's love and forgiveness and grace is all about. He's not holding anything against us. Don't hold it against yourself. Just choose this day. You can repent of how you have been living, and you can turn and live a new way. That's how this works. None of us, I believe, are, when, when, when you look at God's standard of, of not lusting, of not, I, I, I doubt that any of us are 100% innocent of these things. 
But we can make a choice today of how we will live going into the future. According to God, before any man sleeps with any woman, he has to be willing to take care of her for the rest of his life, loving her body more than his own. And ladies, don't ever accept anything less than that. A lifelong commitment to your well-being. And then finally, be content. Be content. Verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And why is that? God says, I'll never leave you or forsake you, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Be content with what you have, free from this, this love uh, of money. Um, is it possible for you and I to live free of the want for more stuff? I mean, we are bombarded with commercials. C.S. Lewis made a very strong statement about this. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm going to share it with you. Just let this sink in after you read it. He who has God and everything has no more than he who has God alone. Just meditate on that. Let that sink in. It'll take time. Just this past week, I heard another conversation about material things. And, and this, again, this was not a, a, a Christian a psychologist that made this statement that if you have enough that you aren't being dogged by bill collectors uh, and things like that, if, if you've got enough to take care of your basic bills, then anything you get on that, on top of that, has actually not proven to really make you any happier. Because you still got all the same problems as, as everybody else. You still have siblings you don't get along with. You still have things you have to do that, that everybody has to do. You still have to pay taxes. Be content with what you have. And ask God to free you from the want of always wanting the next thing. So these are the areas uh, that we see this intersection of our faith and how we live life every single day out there in the town of Sheridan. This is when they come together. And none of us are going to do this perfectly. As a matter of fact, I'm not saying any of this to make anybody feel guilty. That's not the point, right? God gave us, God lovingly and gracious, graciously gave us these instructions so we would know how to live a blessed life doesn't mean you're going to be rich. Do not think that. The blessing of God is, is not connected with your material wealth. There are people who will tell you that. And by the way, they make lots of money telling you that. However, I see no correlation. Jesus died homeless and penniless and blessed because he did the will of the Father. And then the conversation moves. I want to move to this final question um, how do I respond to church leadership? Uh, how do I respond to, to church leadership? Attention moves from life on the street to life in the church. And you can see this is in verses 7 through 19. And there's instructions here for both the church leader and for the church member. And I want to talk, first of all, about well, what are church leaders supposed to do in response to, uh, to what's being written here. And in, in verse 7, uh, the text says... And First of all, we have to live a life worthy of imitation. By the way, when I, when I read that, it like made my hands go a little pale and sweaty and 
It's a difficult notion, but we see it in verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. There's a call here to remember. It could be referring to church leaders who have passed away, but the implication, again, makes me nervous. That as one of the leaders here at First Baptist, I need to live out a faith that is worthy to be imitated. Oy. By the way, you need to think about that when we call elders. Because I am one of a plurality of elders who has this high calling put on their life. Uh, it's, a, it's a high call. And uh, I'm currently reading this book by Charles Spurgeon. It's called Letters to My Students. Charles Spurgeon, uh, pastor in the 1800s, pastor of the Metropolitan Church in England. At first, it was the biggest church of its kind at the time. And just this past week, I, I read a section of that book directed at church leaders, and it, again, it made me sort of turn white. He said this, the life of the preacher should be a magnet to draw them into Christ. And it is sad indeed when it keeps them from him. Sanctity in ministers is a loud call to sinners to repent. And when allied with holy cheerfulness, it becomes wonderfully attractive. Wondrously attractive. Karl Barth, I didn't include this quote, but he was a pastor and become theologian uh, up in Scandinavia. And, and when they came to him and said, hey, would you... Would you like to come back and pastor church? He said, no way. He said, I'm scared of that. He said, I don't want to try to teach children again. It's not an easy calling. It's a high call that I do take, I take very seriously. Leaders have to live this life for them to be imitated. In addition to that, it's essential to hold to right doctrine. The leaders have to hold to right doctrine. This comes from verse 9. Uh, Do not be led away by diverse and strange te teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now, there was a, a lengthy section there in that passage that talked about, um, evidently, the Jews had, had been tempted to go back and go live as some Jews did, thinking that very much a meal was spiritually nourishing to them. Or perhaps there was a cult at the time that had just espoused a view that they could produce spiritual maturity in you by feeding you certain foods. But then they go, the text goes on to say, to talk about how the priest would burn an offering outside the camp. Christ also went outside the camp, though. The place where that priest would burn an offering became sort of defiled ground. But Christ, by going outside the camp was making a strong connection to leaving Judaism. And he's telling his readers, don't go back to Judaism. Don't go back to the way that you used to do things. It's important for us as well. Don't try to live a life that the culture is telling you to live. By the way, there are some uh, religions that are coming back. People aren't replacing Christianity with nothing. Um, there's very much a rise in things like horoscopes and tarot readings and things like that. People are looking for supernatural answers. Don't be led astray by that. Be very careful who you decide to watch on TV and listen to on the Internet. I've got a very short list of people I go to. 
And you can usually tell by the quotes that I use who those people typically are. Keller, Swindoll, Piper, a few others, Spurgeon. Be careful. Hold to, to right doctrine because that leads to right practice. And also the leaders must care for the body. We're called to be shepherds. Pastors, elders, we're called to be shepherds. Uh, this comes up in uh, verse 7. They are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. I will stand before God someday and have to give an account for how well I shepherd, shepherded the body here at First Baptist Church. And so will the elders. So these are implications to church leadership. And briefly, I want to talk about the implications for members. In addition, church members must, one, imitate imitate. Um, actually, I would like for uh, elders, both past and present, to just stand up where they are for a moment. If you have been an elder in the past here at First Baptist, or if you are currently an elder, just take a moment, and if you would just stand up where you're at. They're, see, we're all scared to stand up right now because of what we just read here in, in this passage. I would encourage you to get to know these Men, if you, if you don't know who they are, you can't imitate what they're doing. You can sit down. Thank you so much. We had Derek Schreiner back here in the back, by the way. Don't wanna, I'm not going to leave him. <laughs> uh, yeah, get to know them. And if you think, you know what, well, Chad, it's not appropriate for me to just hang out with that elder. I'm a, I'm a single lady. Well, they've got wives they can take along with them. But, but get to know them. Learn how they go about doing life. That's what I've really benefited from with with these guys? How do they handle certain situations that are hard? What have they done in the past when they're facing the parenting challenges that I'm facing? Find out about them. We should be able to offer you something if you're struggling through a faith crisis right now. And then secondly, reflect. Reflect. In this case, reflect on how you are responding to the leadership here at First Baptist. I'm going to read the entirety of verse, I'm sorry, this is verse 17. Uh, verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. It goes on to say, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It is frankly not the easiest of times. I don't want to sound like a whiner. I hope I'm not. It's not the easiest of times to lead a church right now. Uh, you're interpreting messages that are coming in from leaders and figuring out how do we incorporate this in the church. Uh, there's a lot of time trying to discern the best course of action. And I came across some questions that I think are good for all of us to ask ourselves in regard to church leadership. By the way, when I took my ordination vows, I vowed to submit to the elders of the church. So I, I'm just as subject to this as, as anybody else. But three questions to consider. One, are you a source of emotional refreshment or emotional fatigue? Secondly, does your pastor leave you with a song in the lips or a groan in the heart? And finally, what might be a way you can show encouragement to your church leaders this week? I want to thank, frankly, the vast majority of you do this so very well. And I appreciate that. Uh, very few exceptions to this. I, I think I'm probably one of the most fortunate pastors I know to have the privilege of pastoring 
this group of people. So thank you for your encouragement. Um, thank you for your willingness to, to submit to the leadership here. They're, we are having to make some hard decisions. And then finally, pray. Uh, pray. This comes from verses 18 and 19. Pray for us, we are sh for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I might be restored to you, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Coming straight from the heart of the writer of Hebrews, he's saying pray. Man, do I covet your prayers. If you're bored, don't, want, don't know what to do, just say a prayer for the elders here at First Baptist Church. Pray that we live in such a way that we have a clear conscience. We need it. As a matter of fact, I don't think we could really do our jobs without it. So please pray. And putting all this together, take God's gracious gift of instructions for life. Take God's gracious gift of instructions for life. He loves us enough that he didn't just leave us to try to figure out this life without any instructions at all. He gave them to us, summarized here in Hebrews chapter 13. And I want to close with one quote. This is from a former president, a president who had to lead in a Probably one of the most difficult times in the history of the United States of America. This is from Abraham Lincoln. He said, this great book is the best gift God has given to man, but for it we could not know right from wrong. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you for your instructions. God, I pray that we would never hold them in contempt. I pray that we would never consider there to be any better way of life than the one that you have outlined for us here in this wonderful book that we've been blessed with. And God, I pray that we would look at how we live and ask ourselves the questions, am I truly living out what I believe to be true? That I'm a dearly loved, forgiven child of God. And I pray that that truth would prevail over any false, falsehoods, Lord, lies that come to us from the culture that try to lure us in a different direction. We ask this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you so much for being here today. You're dismissed.